Something really interesting happened this past year that you may not have noticed, but I, I caught on. The Southern Baptist Conference kicked out their largest church from their denomination. I don't know if you've ever heard of Saddleback Church. It is uh, one of their more, it was the largest of the SBC churches. Um, but also you might have known it because Rick Warren was the pastor. He's now handed off to a, a, an, another guy. But uh, he, he was the pastor and he wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And I know churches throughout the country use that for a, a series that they did at one point in time. And he was known for preaching in Hawaiian t-shirts. And so he kind of built out, out in California, he built this mega church. And it was, like I said, it was in the Southern Baptist Conference. So they, they were um, kicked out. And the issue was over women being on their staff as pastors, that they have a, a male head pastor, but now and part of their large team of pastors, they have included women, women and they allowed a, a, a woman, I think it was the wife of the, the call pastor, to actually give a sermon from the pulpit. And so that was contentious. That is a, a uh, controversial topic in the church uh, uh, among, among churches, including among churches who, who believe the Bible is authoritative, the authoritative word of God, which you might call evangelical churches, by churches that preach the good news of Jesus Christ disagree on the questions I have on the screen. Can a woman be a pastor or elder? Can she teach if men are in the room? Can a woman preach on Sunday? There are different views among believers. I've encountered people on both different sides of these questions. And I know within this congregation, there are people that hold different views on this. I was actually hesitant to do this sermon. Um, and you may have noticed back in the fall, I did the women, men series, and I originally kind of envisioned this in that, but I wanted to discuss kind of, I wanted to lay some groundwork truths before we got to this, this actual passage. And so I've been hesitant. I especially did not plan to do it on Baptism Sunday. But uh, that's God's fault because he did that snowstorm that messed up the preaching schedule. And so it kind of changed things. So sorry if you're kind of looking for more of a baptism-y sermon. Uh, this is where we're at today and this is what God has to deal with us. Uh, the other reason I was hesitant is this is complicated. It is, it is not easy. I will have to, I'll have to give you some Greek words to, to sort through some of this. And, and there's one guy who does this podcast who was looking at some of the issues on men and women and leadership in the church. And I, I listened to a couple of his podcasts. And uh, when he got the, the passage we're doing today, 1 Timothy 2, his podcast was 11 and a half hours long. Who has time for that? I mean, seriously, there's no way. I'm like, no, I, uh, I'm sure you have great views on this. I have a life. And th it's, um, so anyways, it is, but it is complicated. And so we're going to look into some of the specific stuff. I'm going to try to stay focused so that th this is not 11 and a half hours long. Um, but I, I want to share with you the two camps. Let me describe the situation, the two different views. There is the complementarian camp. 
And the core idea, idea for complementarians is that God made men and women distinct. He made them to be different with different roles within the church body. The word complement, maybe you don't know that word. It's not complement, which is to say something nice. A complement is to complete or enhance by providing something different. That when, when God made women, they were meant to complement man and that they were different from. So they would bring different things to the table in that. So that's the core idea of complementarianism. Now, where they go from there is then they determine that God has set different roles within the church in church leadership so that the, they will say the church office of elder or pastor is only open to men. So that's complementarian. The other side is egalitarian. The core idea of the egalitarian is that men and women are, are equal and they are both empowered by the Holy Spirit for service in the kingdom. So they're equal in value and worth before God and that God, God uses men and women for the, the promotion of the gospel, the work of this kingdom. And moreover, the, uh, in Christ, women are set free from the constraints of the past. So egalitarians from there will determine that women are just as capable of serving in church leadership as men. So those are the two camps. When it comes to the core ideas, I actually I see both of them as true. But we're, I'm going to present later where I've landed on this issue and offer a, a what I call a hybrid position. I remember in seminary seeing signs on like the, the bathroom walls about egalitarian groups or different like there they were there were arguments and groups that, that were in these different camps and I didn't really engage with it truthfully back way back then. Didn't seem important to me, but then I guess maybe not because I'm a guy. And if you were a woman who was at seminary and studying for ministry, it probably would feel pretty important to you. But I would say in the last five to ten years, I've seen this issue actually grow in prominence, which is why I think you saw what happened with the Southern Baptists. This, this among Bible-believing churches, this seems to be the biggest area of contention and disagreement that's happening. And the passage that is the center of the disagreement is 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. This is... This is the main scripture used to say that women cannot be pastors or teachers in the church. Now, there'll be other passages cited. One of them is 1 Corinthians 14, which talks about women being silent in church. I talked about that one back in the fall, and my take on that is that's referring to interrupting in church. It's not referring to a woman's role in leadership. The other passage they'll look at is actually the one right after this in 1 Timothy 3 that talks about the qualifications for elders. And, and in that, it uses male terms for elders. That, and it says specifically, an elder will be a husband of one wife. But here's the thing. We know that the Bible uses male terms in job descriptions that we know have, were open to women. So, so just the fact that it uses male terms is not in itself determinative on the issue. Um, interestingly, the 1 Timothy 3 actually uses the same phrase for deacons, a husband of one wife. Um, and yet we know there, were, there was at least one woman deacon, and most churches believe that women can be, can be deacons in that. So 
So all that's saying is the, the male language is not definitive. And moreover, if you say a, a, an elder has to be the husband of one wife, then so the letter was written by Paul to Timothy. Neither Paul nor Timothy would qualify to be an elder because neither of them were married. And actually Jesus wouldn't qualify on, on, if you're taking it that way. And so, so it comes really down to, I think, 2.12. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. A man. So what I want to do is, what's the complementarian view on this passage? How do the egalitarians respond? And then I will offer or present to you a hybrid view. And we'll go from there. Uh, complementarians, they will center their argument on verse 12. They will say that this passage so, shows God's design... That a husband is head over a wife. And here's what John Piper writes on this. It says, The husband is to model the loving, sacrificial leadership of Christ, and the wife is to model the glad submission offered freely by the church. So that's complementarianism in marriage. But they'll take this as not just marriage, but as a command in church leadership. That a woman should not be over a man in authority. And that women should be... Um, submissive in, in, within the church to, to the male leadership. Um, now they'll say it's okay for women to teach other women and women to teach children, but it goes against God's plan for a woman to teach a man or to have any kind of authority over him in the church. The next couple verses cite Adam and Eve, and they'll say, see, this is a sign that what Paul's doing is referring to a creation ordinance. That, that this is part of the design for men and women even before sinful nature entered the world. That God planned for men to rule over women. Um, and that verse 14, specifically, Adam's big mistake was in listening to his wife and instead following her and, and failing to lead her away from the sinful choice that, that they made. And that at Eve was deceived... And so there's times where complementarians will say that, that as Eve was deceived, so women are more easily deceived on spiritual issues. And so men are called to take the lead in preserving uh, scripturally faithful teaching. That's the complementarian take within this passage. How do the egalitarians respond? They will offer a different explanation for what Paul is talking about in the text. And they will back up one verse to verse 11 that says, Let a woman learn in, in quietly with all submissiveness. Meaning that women need to learn and they can't be argumentative. Have you ever tried to, you know, try to teach someone something and they just want to argue with you? Like, that doesn't work. And he's saying, you know, women need to learn and not be argumentative in how they are, are learning. And so they will say that what Paul is doing here is he's dealing with a specific situation in Ephesus. And he's not setting a universal rule. And that there was an educational disparity in the congregation. And you see, in, in especially in the Hellenized cities, in the Greek and Roman world, women were not given the opportunities to, to, for education and schooling. We take it for granted that both boys and girls go to school. It was not so. And so the women, as they came into the church, were now getting new opportunities to learn 
and, and teach and grow and develop and, and start to understand the scriptures. But they need, before they would be ready to be teachers, they first needed to learn and learn without arguing over it. And so if you go back to earlier in, the, in Timothy, and Timothy was at, serving in the church of Ephesus. So Paul was writing this letter saying, here's how you need to, to lead the church at Ephesus. The issue that was going on within the church was false teaching. So verses 6 and 7, this is back in the previous chapter, says, certain persons, by swerving from these correct doctrines, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. So, so what it's saying is the, the women of the church were trying to be teachers before they were ready to be teachers. And they're, they're speaking about things they, they don't fully understand. The verb in verse 12 is in the present tense, where it says, I do not permit. That, that means it's, it's not, a, not given as a command or in the future tense. It says, I, I will never, I will not permit. Or it's not a future command oriented. It's just describing what is the current situation in the present tense. Other things that, that the egalitarians will note is that this was a letter written to Timothy. It was written for the church. The whole Bible is written for all people. But you take note of who it was written to. And so this was written to Timothy, not to the congregation as a whole. And they'll say there are things in this that are specific to Timothy, such as 5.23. So later in Timothy... Paul says this, he says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So should we take that as a universal command that we're all commanded to drink wine? Trust me, that will like ex- cause the head of some Baptists to explode. Um, and so the egalitarian, now the egalitarian would say this is, you know, this verse does sort of feel more complementarian, but they'll say it's important to interpret this verse in light of other scriptures that affirm the equality of men and women, and and other passages where, especially like it has Paul speaking of of women in teaching roles such as Priscilla in Acts or Phoebe in in, uh, Romans 16, and so they, they make a good point, egalitarians, when they'll say, when Paul is speaking to the church as a whole, and so there's actually, a, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church. So I want to look at Ephesians 4, 11, where he's talking about the roles of teaching and service. So this, this says, um, and God gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. When, when God says that, Paul, Paul writes that. He doesn't say, now this is only for men. There's nowhere in those addresses to the church that Paul limits that to, to uh, men only. It, he just says it. doesn't say, say one way or the other, but he doesn't, doesn't forbid women to those positions in that. And then they also note verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So the design, the, the design is, in Ephesus, they needed to reach that unity. You know, men and women needed to grow in their understanding 
so that they could be, be at the equal level of education on the things of Scripture. So that's the egalitarian view. There are parts of egalitarianism and complementarian I agree with, and there's things I take issue with. I've become convinced of what I'm going to call the hybrid view. I will tell you where I got it from. It is from a four-seas pastor named Gordon Hugenberger. He is a Gordon Conwell professor, or at least was a Gordon Conwell professor. He is pastor emeritus at Park Street Congregational Church in Boston, which is one of the largest of the four-seas churches. So, and it's a very theologically oriented church. I've listened to his sermons on this issue, and he, he does hour-long sermons on this issue. So I'm, I'm going to keep it shorter. I, I guarantee, I promise. So, um, uh, but, anyway, but anyways, he, he talked about this. And, and so he says that the key idea is you need to let Scripture help you interpret Scripture. So what I want to do now is I want to read 1 Peter 3, 1-7. And what I want you to do is, is maybe with your handouts, look at, look at 1 Timothy 2 and see where you see commonalities between these two passages. And I'm going to suggest they're writing about very similar things. So 1 Peter 3, so obviously Paul wrote the, the letter to Timothy. This is Peter the apostle writing. And he says, likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I believe there's a lot of commonalities, some common words, but also even some common ideas come up, such as the submission of wives to husbands, adornment, right? You know, how you, um, how you braid your hair, um, the wearing of jewelry and gold, uh, modesty in your dress, um, it, it references both reference prayer and holiness and the call for a quiet spirit and attitude. So all these commonalities, it seems like they're, they're aiming at the same thing. I'd say both of these are what would be called a household code. They're both, uh, and those were common in Greek letters, laying out how, how people are related to one another um, in the family. But did you see the one difference that, that maybe stuck out to you? 1 Timothy 2 says man and woman. 1 Peter 3 says husbands and wives. Here's the thing. They're both the same words in Greek. So the word andros is the Greek word for man, but it can be translated man or husband. Both passages use andros or a form of it. 
And the word for woman, gyne, can be translated both woman and wife. Greek did not have separate words um, like we do in English, where we have man and husband, it's the same word. Or woman and wife, same word. And so how you know which one is talking about, which, which way you should translate it, depends on the context of the passage. I, I'm going to argue 1 Timothy 2 should, should be translated husband and wife rather than man and woman like it does in the ESV version. Because it's, it's, a, it's a household code that's talking about how husbands and wives should relate to one another. And here's some of the reasons why. When andros and gyne are paired together, it generally is referring to husbands and wives. Right? When, when it's using both terms, that usually should mean husband and wife. When it talks about the call for modesty in dress and discussion of hairstyle, those are common in household codes of the times, even in non-biblical literature, and that would point to husband and wife. Where it references Adam and Eve together, that points to marriage roles. Where it discusses childbearing, which it does in verse 15, that certainly would point to um, marriage roles. I know today it, it doesn't, but childbearing, they, they would assume that involved husbands and wives. Um, and then the key, I think, is, is verse 11, where it speaks of women being submissive. That points to marriage. First Peter talks about how a woman is to be, sub, be subject to, submissive to, her own husband. Not to men in general. Women are not commanded to be subject to men in a general sense, but to their own husband. So, so all that to say, um, if we translate it differently, if we translate husbands and wives, then what do we got? Okay? What's the next slide? So I desire then, in every place, the husband should pray. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm missing a... So in a um, oh yeah, one more reason. Here's, here's why I think Peter and Paul are concerned about husband and wife relationships. Look at verse 8. What if this is talking about husbands? It says, I desire then that in every place the men or the husband should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Who does Paul envisioning there's going to be anger or quarreling with? Is it a church-wide thing? What does Peter talk about? Husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you read between the lines, I think Peter's saying, husbands, don't use your strength against your own wife. If that compare that to verse 8, husbands, don't, don't lift your, use your hands in anger. Use them for prayer. And anger and quarreling against your wife. I think both of these, they're, they're subtly talking to the husbands of, your anger is not to be, your, you should... Take care of your wife. You are physically stronger. Don't, don't use that physical strength against your own wife. So, so in all of this, um, I think that should be translated this way. I do not permit a wife to teach or to exercise authority over a husband rather than man and woman. There's one other translation word, and I told you we had to get into Greek in this. It's complicated stuff. Um, so the second big interpretive issue, can you go one more slide? Yeah. So I do not permit a wife to teach or to exercise authority over a husband. Th there's another uh, translation issue in this, and it's the, 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 
the word exercise authority. That comes from one single Greek word that is here translated in the ESV version as exercise authority. And trust me, there are papers upon papers, academic, there's probably dissertations written on translating this particular Greek word. And the word is authentane. That's what it would be in Greek. Go, next slide, Mark. And it looks like that in the Greek language. If you go to a Greek lexicon, and I just saw, found this, it, it's translated to domineer. So there's another Greek word that's authority, and that's exousia. In it is the normal word that's translated authority. In Matthew 7, when it says that the, the, the people were amazed by Jesus because he taught as one who had authority, that's using the word exousia. And almost every place in the Bible where you would see authority, it'd be that word exousia. It's rightfully given authority from God. Paul does not use that word in this verse. Does not use the word exousia. He uses a different word. Authentane. And, and this is the, there's lots of arguments over how to translate it, but there's a sense that it has a negative connotation in the Greek literature. And that it should be translated domineer and not just exercise authority. So one example I saw is, is its use in, because it's, it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. That's the other thing. This, this is the only place this word shows up in the Bible. So we have no reference on how to translate it other than other, other Greek literature. One example is a Roman noble is writing to another noble, and he, he talks about how he had to conscript that, that man's slave to do something. And you generally didn't do that in Roman culture. You didn't give commands to another person's slave. That was inappropriate. He has to explain why he had to do that in the certain case, and he uses the word authentane, how he had to... to to assume authority over this man's slave when you normally wouldn't. Another place where this word is used, used, it's a later Christian pastor writing called John Chrysostom, one of the Greek church fathers who wrote and taught and preached in Greek. He writes that men should not authentane over their wives, meaning to domineer. So he used the word authentane in that negative sense of authority. And so... Um, so it's not meant to, to, to uh, so it has this negative authority, and if you interpret that way, it then actually, I think it actually fits with what Peter is saying. So what, if you go back to Peter, so I'm comparing the two passages. What did, oh, I'm sorry. First, let me say. So then it would be the translation, it is inappropriate for a wife to domineer over or boss her husband around. So that's the hybrid view of what this passage should be translated as. And, and if so, it actually is echoing the same message as 1 Peter 3. Where 1 Peter 3 says, if, if a husband, saying to the wife, if your husband is not believing the word of God, how do you persuade him? It says, um, you know, if they don't obey the word, don't just talk to them. It says they, they may be won over without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they receive your respectful and pure conduct. What's Peter saying to wives? He's saying, if your husband's being stubborn on this and is not believing the word, you can't, you can't convince him by nagging him and saying, 
oh, well, the Bible says this, and you should, you know, you ought to believe what the Bible's saying. Like, that doesn't work. You've got to win them over without words. What if Peter and Paul are talking about the same thing? He's saying a wife cannot, you know, domineer over, take the role of a teacher for her husband. It doesn't work that way. And that's why he's not permitting it. Um, and if so, it would make sense why Paul would cite Adam and Eve because they were a married couple. And it, that makes sense of verse 13 and 14. Lastly, I have to address verse 15. Now, whatever view you take, a hybrid complementarian, verse 15 throws a lot of people. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery of what this, this means. Maybe, you, maybe it caught your attention when we read it. It says, yet she, womankind, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Sometimes we say, women will be saved by what? You know, you could read it on the surface and it says, you know, women will, will gain eternal life by having babies. It is not saying that. If there's one thing we know, it doesn't mean it's that. Because Paul very clearly in other places talks about how all people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's none of us earn a way into God's salvation by having babies or anything. So we know it doesn't mean that, but then what does it mean? What is he talking about? Um, I've heard it suggested that it, it should be that she will be saved through the childbirth, and it's talking about the coming of Jesus. Um, here's where I'll go back to Hugenberger. And the best suggestion I've heard, and again, this is a bit of a mystery, is that Paul is addressing one of the false teachings that's predominant within the church, one of the things that's coming up. And it comes from Greek Platonist thought. And that is the idea that the world of matter and flesh is inherently evil and that you, you should have nothing to do with the flesh. And there, there were groups that taught that sex and childbirth were inherently disqualified someone from spiritual things. And what Paul is saying is pish posh. You know, women can be saved even if they have children. They just continue in faith and love and all that. Right? right? It's... It's saying, it's, it's refuting the idea that somehow giving birth to children will disqualify women from, from being saved. That's the best suggestion I've heard on how to understand verse 15. Let me wrap this up. And in fact, I'm going to switch gears because I'm going to talk about how do we apply this and, and what does it mean. And I recognize that there are different views on this. Um, so I'm even going to just change my posture a little bit. And how do we think about this? My take on how to understand it. First of all, this passage in the hybrid view, this is what I'm going to call it hybrid, it affirms complementarity in a marriage relationship. Um, in other words, it does speak of women are to be subject to their husbands, to not rebel against their husband, they're not undermine or work to, that, that, that in a marriage relationship, God brings together a husband and wife, and, and he is to take the lead. The, the, the tandem bike is my illustration for that, that they both travel together, and the, the husband has an important responsibility in leading his family towards faith in Christ, and so that is still true, and if, if you have questions on that, I gave a whole sermon 
on that back in the fall. I'm sure we can find that on, on YouTube or something that talks about complim- uh, the idea of, of husband or wives being subject to their husbands. And, and where I think strident egalitarians go wrong is they forget this part. Um, they, they so emphasize the equality of men and women that they can lose sight of the truth that God made men and women different on purpose. Um, men and women uh, both are called to work together to promote the kingdom of God, the work of God, the, the, be partners in the gospel, but both bring different things to the table. That men and women were made different, and God gave men different and women different strengths into his service. And so there is a sense where men have that, that leadership function in the home um, and, and oftentimes in the church and mainly in the church. So that there's a, if you think of, of the, the church leader as a shepherd, like we talked about last week, that idea of being on the watch out for, for the dangerous wolves or, or making sure the sheep don't go off the cliff, that, that is pictured as kind of that male masculine virtue. And I think strident egalitarians miss that. Um, you can end up with a worldly perspective that, you know, men and women are equal, so there should be equal representation. You know, we should have exactly the same number of men and women on the church board. Um, and otherwise, you know, women are, are being oppressed and told what to do. That's not, that's not the way the church works. We need to have a kingdom perspective. Truth is, be told, no one has a right to a ministry position. No one does. I, it, it, Paul says one point, he says, we have this ministry through God's grace. And so God calls whom he will call. And the elder shepherd role of watching over, of protecting the sheep from danger, God made men with natural strength and aggression and that aggressiveness towards that work. So that's where I see the, the egalitarians sometimes going wrong and pushing that too far. Now, where I think the avid complementarians go wrong is they make gender roles within the church a new law. Um, they, they say that God assigns these roles and that men and women are bound in certain things that they can and can't do. If you are in complementarian cir- circles, they will have law upon law about what women are allowed to do or not allowed to do. Is it okay for them to give announcements? Is it okay for them to, to lead worship? Or can they sing but they can't like make comments? Uh, I mean, you get in perspectives where all these things are argued over and it's as if the law has been, they view it as the law was given as a command by God that women can't ever do this or that. That, that it's forbidden by God for, to, for a woman to teach or to give a sermon. Um, but, but is that what Paul's doing? Is Paul laying down a, a law for his people when he said this in verse 12? Think about it. What does Paul say about the law? For those who know the, the, his, his other writings, Paul says we're not under law. We're in Christ. He talks about how we've been set free from the law. Um, that Christ died, that the law is not what binds us. We are bound to Christ and following him and his teachings and, and then the leading of the Spirit. 
Paul in his letters declaratively insists that in Christ we are not slaves but have been set free and we should not let ourselves be put under a yoke of slavery. And the, the rigid gender roles can be a new kind of slavery that are imposed. It says we do not operate under law but in the Holy Spirit. So a key, key passage is Galatians 5, 22. And this is Paul, right? St. Paul who wrote... First Timothy says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So law is not the right framework. To be legalistic about what women can or can't do is not the right framework for, for operating in this. The, I, I don't believe this passage or any passage forbids women from having a teaching role even if, if men show up in the room. That was Beth Moore's problem. She, she, would, she would do these Sunday school classes and they became so popular because she was such a teacher and, and she was in the Southern Baptist Church at the time in a complementarian uh, framework and she would teach and she'd say men, men would show up and, and she was criticized for teaching men. It's like, like, what was she supposed to do? Kick them out? Say, no, you're not allowed in here. You know, like she would just be teaching the word of God. The Bible does not anywhere forbid women from teaching um, what God has said. And it doesn't forbid men from learning from women and what they have to say. When they're teaching God's word, it's God's word that matters. Think about it this way. When, when the, um, who, who was commissioned to be the first preachers of the resurrection? This is the women. They found the empty tomb and they were told, go tell the men that he has risen from the dead. What did the men do? Not believe them. <laughs> so, so women are commissioned to teach. They can teach. Now, here's the sign. I mean, can they preach on Sunday? I don't see any reason why a woman couldn't give a guest sermon here or, or anywhere. Uh, you know, they can teach the word. Um, I don't see any reason why a woman couldn't teach a Sunday school class, and we do that here at, at, at East Glendale. That's, that's part of what we do. Um, so women are able to teach. The question is, so there's a, a further question, but, but when you're teaching as a pastor or elder, then you are teaching with the church's authority. So that is a little different question. And, and so we got to go a little further. I told you this is complicated, right? All right, I'm, I'm, I'll meet, keep moving forward. So... So for women, in the, if you look in the Bible, kind of go through the Old Testament, for women to be shepherds or leaders over God's people was uncommon, but not unheard of. It was culturally unexpected. I mean, they didn't expect that women would be leaders in those ancient times. But it was not forbidden. Culturally unexpected, but not forbidden. Keep that phrase in mind, because I, I think that's helpful. And, and so if you look back in the Old Testament times, God did put women in authoritative positions, um, such as Deborah. Uncommon, but Deborah was a judge who, who led God's people and gave orders, and they were expected to follow them. Now, a complementarian say, well, she's the exception that proves the rule. Okay, that's fair. Um, another woman who was put in the position of authority was Esther. Esther uh, ended up being the one through whom God brought salvation 
for the Jewish people when they were in Persia. And at the end of it, she gives the command to celebrate a new festival, the festival of Purim, that that comes at the command of Esther. And now here's the thing. The only people who had ever given a command to celebrate a festival before that was Moses. So in the Old Testament, only two people give commands for Israel to gather and celebrate a festival, Moses and Esther. Uncommon, but not forbidden. Culturally unexpected, but God did not seem to to be afraid to use women when he saw fit to give them that authority. It did not stop God from from doing it. And so when when you get it, one more thing, Joel 2. Then there's this prophecy. It says, when the Spirit comes, things are going to be different. Joel is talking about, you know, in those days, when I will send out my Spirit, things are going to change. And what does it say? It says, after it, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons, um, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. It envisions but does not spell out that there will be changes in how God's people operate. So it's suggestive, but it doesn't set a rule. So coming to kind of where I've landed, Saddleback, they have this this big church. Oh, I'm sorry, one last point. Is when Jesus and Paul were operating, it seemed like doors for women in being a part of that ministry were opened. That, 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 yes, it was still mainly men leading. Uh, all the 12 apostles were men. But there were open doors for women to be a part of it, included in what God was doing. They added to the work of the ministry. So, so I can envision Saddleback. Um, what they did is when they transferred from Rick Warren to the next guy, his wife um, was considered a pastor with him. And then they have other women pastors. And they, I believe they had the right, given by God, to make that choice. That where there's not a rule, there is freedom for God's people. It's not forbidden, and it's up to the local community of, of the congregation to determine, is it right for us in our ministry setting to, to go this direction? Elders are not appointed from above, they are appointed from within. By the community of God's people. And so it's up to God's people to sense, is this where God is, is, is right for us on this? Where there's not a law, things, there's freedom. And so I think verse, 1 Corinthians 10 is very applicable. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so they determined at... Saddleback Church, this would help us build up if this husband and wife work together as pastors. And I think that's okay. Now, I think it's also okay if a church determines we need to set limits for the ministry setting that we're in. And so let's talk a minute about East Glenville Church. Overall, in the core of East Glenville Church, I believe we have men and women working together as partners in the gospel to do the work of God. We have men and women in different kinds of leadership positions. But we have decided that for the elder board that we would have only men. And I'm going to say this. I have come to appreciate that. 
I've seen there's wisdom. When you talk about all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial or helpful or build up. And so I came from a church where they didn't have elders. My, my previous church that I worked in, um, they had people who were functionally elders. Because every church has spiritual men and women involved. But they didn't have a set, defined elder board. And I, I tell you, I see the value in having a group of men who, who together with me are, are considering the spiritual direction of the church, who are considering especially the, the spiritual needs of, of the whole congregation, but especially the guys. Can I say guys are hard to lead? Yeah, we, we have that note. And, and, and I think there's a danger, I'm going a little off script, there's a bit of a danger that um, for men, that stubborn nature, if they see something as a woman thing, they're going to tune out. And I've seen churches where it's kind of viewed, oh, that's a woman thing. And the men get the attitude, well, I might show up on Sundays to, to humor my wife, but I'm going to go start a fight club over here. You know, it's just, it, and so I think the, the benefit to having this one role where we insist that the men take up a role of spiritual leadership. And, and it's, it's a call to serve the congregation and to make sure that the men are, are doing that. And I think that is important and beneficial to the, to the church. Um, when men take the role of, of an elder, they're taking the role of a servant leader. I think sometimes people have this vision of, well, an elder is in charge, and they get to give commands, and people will do them. Is that how it works? Is that, does that work for anyone else? No, it, it, it's, for the most part, the, the elders are, are in the role of maybe sometimes persuading. Um, we, we looked last week at First Peter, where he says to the elders, he says, do, do not domineer over the flock, but set the example. The main way you, an elder's eld is by serving and, and, and persuading and teaching, not by issuing orders and commands. The group I find that's most appreciative or most uh, advocate, advocating for an all-male el- elder board is actually the women. Because they say when, when men are in that role, uh, they, they know there's someone watching over the, the spiritual lives of the church. It says that actually frees them up to serve God more fully because they know there's, there's these guidelines in there. And they don't feel oppressed by it. They actually feel enabled to serve God that way. Um, one, one other thing, I, I'm talking to an older pastor because I've been having a lot of conversations on this issue the last six, six months. And um, he, he grew up in this church, and now Pastor Jim, I'll tell you, Jim Hale. He says, he, says, he thinks of it this way. He thinks of it's when the fathers of the church, who, who embrace not just their own families, but the larger sense of the church. The fathers of the church, are, as elders, are kind of watching over the church in a broader sense. That, that, that has, that's the vision of what elders are. Um, I love this verse in Jeremiah 3.15. It says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart um, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, the truth is, is women need 
women spiritual leaders as well. Men are probably not going to disciple women for the most part. Um, So we need women who are spiritual leaders, who take roles, and we we have that in other venues. Uh, But but I see the value in having the undergirding the church as a whole is this board of, of men, the elders, who are the spiritual men who've said, I will take the role of being a servant to the whole congregation. I could talk more. Um, I want us to go with three things. The, the reason why I'm doing the sermon, first of all, is that we would understand. If, if you're in one camp, I want you to be able to understand the, the arguments of the other camp. In fact, I think you should be able to express the viewpoint of the other camp in a fair way. Neither of these sides are, are you know, are doing it because they don't believe the Bible, right? I, I know, like I said, I know people who are strongly on both these sides. They're people who take the word of God seriously, and that's, that's so first of all, understand. Second of all, honor. Do not show disrespect to people from other traditions that might have women pastors. This is one of the things I think it's very unchristian to be disrespectful, and, so I asked her if it was okay to, to highlight, we have a woman pastor in our midst, Perlene. Yes, and she's a valued part of our congregation. She has been called by her community. She was a pastor in Madagascar um, when she came from there. And, and she led her, her people. And, and now, now that a lot, a lot of times there's Madag- uh, Malagasy communities in the U.S., she still continues to serve as pastor in this, this, this uh, way. And, and she should be honored for the work that she do, does. I'm pretty, you know, you could tell I like to do Greek words. I don't do Hebrew. I, I, I just didn't, didn't take with Hebrew. When I have a Hebrew question, I go to Perlene. Because in addition to Malagasy, she speaks French and Hebrew. So, uh, so I'm, I'm willing to, to, to hear what she has to say on that. So understand and honor, but most of all, friends. I believe we are called as a congregation that men and women would work together to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. That we would bring our natural giftedness, who we are, our skills, our, our personalities. We would operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is calling us to build his kingdom by making known Jesus in this, in this community. And so that's the song I'm heading towards is the worship team giving them hints. Come on up. Um, we build that kingdom because we're so in love with Christ and it's just natural to serve and, and make known the grace of Christ within it. Let me pray. Father, I know on this, this issue we have people who come from different perspectives. Help us have grace and understanding for one another and, and to understand the, the different viewpoints. Lord, help us operate in grace and love for one another. And help us make known the good, news in, the good news of Christ as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing our closing song together.